I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. I'm uh, in between series at the present time, so I'm just going to share something that's, uh, that's on my heart. It's, uh, this is one of those topics that's uh, almost always on my heart. But um, nevertheless, I want to talk to you tonight about the authority of man. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us to the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So he's talking to believers. He's writing to believers. He's writing to those that have been born again. Here's the message. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice this is how grace, which is everything Jesus has purchased for us through his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, and peace is available through knowledge. I want you to know it's not available through prayer. It's not available through complaining. It's available through knowledge. That'd solve a lot of people's problems if they just understand that. Verse 3, according. Here's the reason why. According as his divine power, that's the new birth, that's the work of the Holy Ghost on the inside of us, that all those that are reading, or at least all those that this letter is addressed to, have experienced. According as his divine power hath given. Now I want you to notice that's past tense. Hath given unto us. All things, everybody say all things. How much does that encompass? Is there anything left out? According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now let's stop and think about that for a minute. What things pertain to life and godliness? The life he's talking about has got to be eternal life. Godliness has got to be the aspect or characteristic of righteousness. So maybe we would be better off defining it rather than trying to uh, specify what are all things that pertain to life and godliness. Maybe we'd be better off defining it by saying he's given us all things that conquer spiritual death and sin. Because that would be the, the opposite of things that pertain to life and godliness, wouldn't it? That means he's given us all things that pertain to the overcoming of sin in our lives, strength. He's not talking about the new birth. That's already been given. That's what brought us into the family of God. But he's giving us strength to overcome temptation. He's given us healing to overcome sickness. He's given us prosperity to overcome poverty. He's given us peace to overcome depression. He's given us all things that pertain into life and godliness. Now here's the reason I want you to, to focus in on this for just a moment. And that is, what do you think most Christians' prayer life looks like? If not praying and asking God for things that pertain to life and godliness. My point is very simply this. If this verse of scripture is true, if the Holy Ghost truly told Peter to write this to the church, to the believers, the family of God, then most people are praying for what's already theirs. Well, the things that are already given to you freely of God don't come by prayer. 
They don't come by you asking God for them. Wouldn't make any sense to ask him for something he's already given you, would it? You wouldn't appreciate that from your kids. You would want your kids to ask you for something you've already provided for them. You'd want them to take advantage of it and use it. And if they kept on and kept on and kept on asking you, pretty soon you're going to think something's wrong with them. Well, folks, may I be so bold as to say there's something wrong with a lot of Christians' prayer lives? And that something that's wrong is a lack of knowledge. Which robs them of the very things that they desire. The very things that God has provided. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. And our Lord Jesus Christ. According. As his divine power has given unto us all things. That pertain unto life and godliness. Through the knowledge. Here's how you take advantage of them. Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Whereby for this purpose. To take advantage of everything that's been given to you. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Now folks please understand he's not talking about the new birth. He's already written in verse 1. It says he's writing to people that have been born again. He's writing to those that have obtained like precious faith to the righteousness of God. That means salvation. So partakers of the divine nature doesn't mean so that you might be born again, that you might be saved. It means that you might live up to who you've been created to be in Christ Jesus. He's talking about a state, a condition of Christianity that's based on authority. Can you see that? Now notice the way the Holy Spirit prompts Peter to write this. He's writing to him to encourage people to come to the knowledge and to recognize and to walk in the fact that they're more than conquerors. That they've been given all things. Not to look to seek after, look for or seek after the things that are already given. But that they might, that they might walk in it. Walk in those things. And overcome the evil that's in the world. Overcome the consequences of spiritual death that still abide in this physical realm. Is any of this making sense? Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers by the word of God. You might be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped, you've already escaped. Not in hopes of escaping, but having escaped. The corruption that is in the world through lust. May we categorize that or summarize that statement by saying having escaped spiritual death and all of its consequences. Having escaped the bondage of spiritual death. The bondage of spiritual death is sin. It's sickness. It's poverty. It's depression. It's anything that holds you back. It's anything that holds you bound. The Bible says you've already escaped that. By virtue of the fact that you've been made righteous in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to keep this in mind. Particularly verse 3. According he has given to us. According as his divine power has given unto us. All things that pertain unto life and godliness. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. I want you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to start reading, and this is a creation account, I'm going to start reading in verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, an exact duplicate in kind. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. The word subdue means to bring it under your control. You're in charge. Something gets out of whack, you deal with it. Something needs fixing, you fix it. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you. It's already done. Everything was in place. Everything was in order when God made Adam and Eve. Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree, yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, folks, I I have to tell you the truth. I don't know if this is the entirety of what God said, but it's God's um, report of what he told Adam and Eve for Moses to give us a record of. And literally, what's taking place here, whether it's in its entirety or not, what's taking place here is that God creates man, breathes the breath of life into him. He becomes a living soul. And then he says to Adam, I've given you everything that's in the earth. You walk in it, you take care of it, you bring it under your control, which indicates that there might be things that get out of control. Otherwise, what is there to exercise control over? See, God knew the devil was present before Adam ever found out. So he says, I've given you everything that you need to exercise dominion. Now, folks, you may get tired of me saying this, and for that, let me apologize up front, but I'm never going to quit saying it. God never changes. His will never changes. There is no shadow of turning with God. If his original plan was to make man for the purpose of having dominion on the earth, which is the only reason that the Bible ever states that God wanted to make man. Let us make man in in our own image and let him have dominion. That's the only reason. It's the only thing that the Bible ever says. There's no place in the Bible that God said, I'm lonely. Let me make somebody that I can fellowship with. How could God be lonely? It's impossible. God was complete in himself. His desire to make man was for one and only one purpose, and that was for him to have dominion over the creation that he was going to make, and that was the earth. So if that was God's original intent, then that's his present-day intent. If man, if God's plan for the earth was for man to have, have dominion, then it's his intent and his plan for man to have dominion today. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like what Peter just said? Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, according as his divine power has given unto us, has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
God said to Adam and Eve, you've got a whole world to exercise dominion over. You've got a whole world that you're in charge of. I know some people get uh, freaked out by using this term, but the fact is God made man to be the God of this earth. By that, I just simply mean he made him to be in charge. He made him to have dominion. Well, again, if that was God's original plan, that's God's plan today. If God's plan for the earth was for man to have dominion over everything that's here, it's his plan now that we've been brought into his family and restored to life, restored to righteousness in Christ Jesus. It's his plan for man to have dominion in the earth today. There's no two ways about that. And I know a lot of people don't accept that, and I understand it. It cuts crossways with most of the church preaching over the last 2,000 years. Certainly the modern-day church. But you can't escape that truth. If God is who he says he is in the word, you cannot escape that truth. Now, I've been guilty in times past, and I know a lot of other people have too, is because that's where I got it. I got it from others. Of saying that when man sinned, when man fell in the Garden of Eden, he lost his place of authority. Where do we get that? Where do we ever come up with that idea? There's only one place in the Bible that I'm aware of through my studies that, the, that indicates that the devil is, has authority in any way over the earth. And that was when he tempted Jesus in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, you remember the temptations. The first one was if you're the son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread. Jesus answered, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In Luke chapter 4, about verse 6, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment of time. And he said unto them, all these kingdoms and all this glory I will give unto you if you will worship me. For that is delivered unto me and I can give it to whoever I want to. And Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. That's the only place that you can find where the devil is given any, where there's any indication in the New Testament that the devil is the one that has authority on the earth. But now let's stop and examine that for a minute. First of all, the first point I want to make before I go into any further explanation is that what Jesus heard from the devil did not stop him from exercising authority over sickness and disease. It did not stop him from exercising authority over demons and evil spirits. What he heard from the devil did not stop Jesus from exercising the God-given authority that he had here on the earth. So my question, first question would be this. If it didn't stop Jesus from exercising his authority, then why should it stop us? Interesting point. Point number two. If the devil has, and, and it's clear... We saw from the, the teaching, the series that we did on Revelation here recently about the beast system and the different uh, world governments that the devil has set up and utilizes. We know that he uses governments, civil governments, to exercise control and dominion and to, pro to uh, promote his agenda in the earth. We know that for a fact. But if the devil has complete authority, even in civil governments, how is it possible for Israel to ever have had a righteous king? 
See, if the devil has complete authority, as most of the church world seems to think he does, then how is it possible that Hezekiah was a righteous king? How is it possible that David was a righteous king? Now, don't get me wrong. These guys screwed up. They messed up. They committed sin. They were imperfect. But they had a heart for God. So if the devil is the one that's controlling all of the governments of the earth or any other part of the earth, how is it that man has the opportunity to resist him? How is it that man has an opportunity to refuse to be a part of his plans and his purposes? How is it that the old covenant gave instruction to man saying that if you'll obey what the word says to do, obey the commandments that God gave Moses, then blessings will come upon you instead of curses. Because if the devil's in charge, he's going to curse everybody to the greatest degree possible, isn't he? Jesus said the purpose of the devil, the whole purpose of the devil was to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Well, then why isn't he destroying everybody? Why did he leave you alone long enough to get saved? See, folks, the idea that man lost his authority on the earth is contrary to everything that we know about God and the eternal nature of our Heavenly Father. Furthermore, if the devil was big enough to wrest authority from man simply by deceiving him, sounds to me like the devil's power was greater than God's when he made man the ruler of the earth. Sounds to me like God didn't do a good job of planning when he said, let us make man in our own image and let him have dominion. If man's dominion in the earth was that fragile, where one misstep caused everything about God's eternal plan to go out the window, it seems to me that the devil is least, at the very least an equal power, if not a greater power. Are you with me? Let's shift gears a little bit. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, we'll start reading in verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And I say to another one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does whatever I tell him to do. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now, what was it about this guy that qualified him for great faith other than what he just explained to Jesus? That's all Jesus knows about this guy is what he just explained. He said, I understand authority. And Jesus said that qualified him for great faith and he hadn't found it anywhere in Israel up to that point in time. Well, if understanding authority qualified you for great faith in Jesus' day, why wouldn't it qualify you for great faith today? Now, instead of focusing on the great faith part, 
which there's a lot of things there we could look at and probably should look at, uh, at least in a different time, different setting. What I want you to see is very simply this. Jesus marveled at this man's understanding of authority and how it related to the things of God. Now, the understanding of authority that this man had was simply a natural authority based on the work that he did as a centurion or a Roman soldier. But he understood that when he, because of his rank over the soldiers that were under his charge, because of his rank, because of the position that was given to him by those that were higher than he was in the army and ultimately Caesar himself, he understood that authority caused things to take place at the spoken word. And Jesus marvels that he understands something very significant. Now, Jesus doesn't say, wow, you stumbled up on something. I wish other people would understand this. Jesus marveled at this man's greatness of faith through his understanding. Remember 1 Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God our Father and Jesus our Lord. He's saying the same thing to this man. Your understanding, your knowledge of authority and how it works in a military situation is the greatest example of faith that he's run into in his earthly ministry at that point in time. And he didn't find it from somebody that should understand some of these things. He found it from somebody outside the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham understood obedience. God told him to do something and he did it and he was blessed because of it. Israel didn't catch on. But the centurion did. The centurion understood that when somebody in authority speaks, those that are under their authority, whether they be people or things, must obey. So he says to Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. It's not necessary for you to be physically present any more than it's necessary for me to be physically present for one of my orders to be carried out. You just speak the word and sickness and disease, which is under your authority, will have to leave. And Jesus marvels at his willingness to accept the spoken word as the proof of the final result. Can I suggest to you that it might do us well to understand authority? May I suggest that it would be worth our while to exercise ourselves to understand at least what the centurion did. And I believe since we're born again, since we have a greater insight into spiritual truth than he ever did, we should go even further than the authority, than the under, than the centurion's understanding of authority. Wouldn't you agree? Yet this seems to be one of the weak points of the church. You ask most Christians who has authority on the earth and they'll say, well, God, I think, or maybe it's the devil. Oh, gee, I don't know. And that's where most of the church world lives in the I don't know. This guy knew and Jesus credited him, commended him for his great faith. Let's talk about some other things that we know. We know in Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus gave his authority, gave authority over sickness and disease to his disciples, first the 12 and then the 70. 
We know he gave them authority to cure diseases and to cast out devils. And he told them what to do and he told them how to use it. Here's a question for you. Where did he get the authority to give to them? If man lost his authority to the devil, it's clear that Jesus is operating in authority that breaks the power of the devil. So how did he get it back while he was here on the earth? If we conclude that God had the authority and he delivered it to Jesus, then the question is, how did God give it back from man? You're telling me that when man fell, authority shifted back to God? That wouldn't make sense. First of all, God didn't give part-time authority to man. He gave man authority over the earth for as long as the earth reigns, for as long as the earth exists. Man is to reign, rule and reign over the earth. So where did Jesus get the authority over sickness and disease that he gave to his disciples? Turn with me to two openings of scripture. First of all, I want you to see John chapter 3. Then after that, we'll turn to Mark chapter 11. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That means he's acquainted with the law of Moses. He should know what the old covenant's about. The same man came to Jesus by night under the cover of darkness and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, let me ask you a question. What in the world is Nicodemus getting at? Is he just brown-nosing Jesus here? Is he just stroking him a little bit? If so, he's going to to some degree of risk. He doesn't want to be found out by the rest of the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. There must be some kind of threat that he feels like he needs to come in the cover of darkness. For what purpose? Why would he go to risk, put himself at risk to whatever degree he was to come tell Jesus, we know that you're come from God? Is that really what he's after? Is it possible that he's coming to Jesus searching for the answer to how is Jesus doing these miracles and so forth that God obviously is helping him do? Jesus seems to think so because Jesus answers him and says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I do not believe that Jesus is some kind of weirdo where no matter what somebody asks him, he just focuses on what his talking points are and talks about salvation. If this is the case, this is the only time in the, in the uh, scriptures that it happens. Every other time when people ask Jesus questions, he answers their questions. But let me submit something to you for your consideration. Nicodemus is focused on God because of the miracles. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. Come from God. For nobody can do the miracles that you do unless God is with him. 
Where is Nicodemus looking to as the source of the power? The source of the miracle working power that's operating in Jesus. Well, from what he says, he's looking to heaven. Jesus, however, redirects his attention and his focus. He doesn't talk about heaven. He talks about the condition of man. Now, the subject is, and and without question, the subject of Nicodemus' query or inquiry is the miracles. You've got to be from God because you can't do miracles unless God is with you like this. So his interest is in the miracles. Jesus takes his attention away from heaven. He takes his attention away from himself and points it back to the condition of man. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he not at least come in Nicodemus and say, first of all, even though you came under cover of darkness, good on you for recognizing that I'm from God. And then why didn't he speak further and say, and since you've identified that I'm from God, you know who that makes me, don't you? You know the Old Testament scriptures. You know the law of Moses. You know that I'm doing the things that the Bible says, that the Old Covenant said, that Isaiah said, that the Messiah would do. Have you connected the dots yet? That would have been a great conversation for him to have with him, wouldn't it? But that's not what Nicodemus is after. That's not the point of his comment. The point of his comment is not, are you the Messiah? It's where are these miracles coming from? And Jesus points him back to the condition of man. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He seems to be making a casual statement that these miracles that you're so jazzed about, Nicodemus, are just a part of the kingdom of God. And the way to get into the kingdom of God is to be born again. We could stop here for a minute and remind you of Second Peter chapter 1. Where Jesus said, according to your, or Paul, what's his name? Peter said, by the Holy Ghost, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Isn't that what Jesus is doing here? It, aren't those the miracles that Nicodemus is wowed by? Things that pertain to life and godliness. Things that show the exercise of power over the devil's works in the earth. Healing of disease. Deliverance from bondage. Casting out of devils. Wouldn't that be things that pertain to life and godliness? They'd have to be. And Jesus points him back to the condition of man. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, without finishing the story, turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. Because the point is not talking about how to be born again or that. The point is, where does the authority come from? Where is the source of the power? Where is the source of the miracles? Where is the source of the authority? Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there came unto him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they said unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? Now they just come out and ask the question. 
Now realize this is the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. This would be the same group in Jerusalem that Nicodemus is a part of. Is it possible that this has been a topic of conversation at the council meetings? Would make sense, wouldn't it? Nicodemus just got a head start on it. Came to Jesus privately, but now they all come. And they want to know one thing. Where did the authority come from to do the miracles that you've done, that you're doing and that you've done? Where did the authority come from? Folks, that's a great question. Where did the authority come from? We know the authority first rested with Adam in the Garden of Eden. But we know Adam fell. What happened to it then? We know the Bible says that Satan is the God of this world. But it doesn't mean the God of the earth. It doesn't even mean the God of this world system. I don't believe the world system changed when man fell. I don't believe the devil's big enough to replace God's system with another one. That term, that word that's translated world in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, where it says Satan is the God of this world, that word world means time. He's the God of this time. He's the God of this age. But how does he exercise authority? Or how does he influence man? Maybe that's a better way to say it. How does the devil influence man during this present age? Can he make you do anything against your will? Absolutely not. Then how does he exercise influence over mankind? Through deception. He deceives man in our present day just like he deceived Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Or deceived Eve at least. He deceived Eve into using her authority in a manner contrary to the purpose of God. How does the devil control the world kingdoms? By deceiving man to use his own authority contrary to the plans and the purposes of God. But as we've noted before, there were good kings in Israel. There have been good kings in other countries. What have they done? They've exercised their authority and their influence according to things that were good and right instead of according to the devil's purposes. So I guess we could say, if we wanted to summarize it, or you tell me if this would be an accurate statement, it seems to me that we could summarize the devil's activity as working full-time to deceive man to use his authority in a manner that's contrary to his best interest and contrary to the plans and purposes of God. And except he could get man to to use his authority in an ill-advised way, he cannot influence man whatsoever. He cannot utilize his actions or his power, whatever those powers may be, to man's detriment. He's got to get man to misuse his own authority. If man doesn't still have authority on the earth, how would that be possible? Or why would it be necessary? Folks, the simple truth is if the devil can't get you to do something that your spirit doesn't want to do, 
If he can't get you to exercise your will, to side in with your flesh, he can't do anything in your life. And the more knowledge of the Word of God we gain, the more we walk in the Word of God, and the more we grow spiritually, the more spiritual power and authority we exercise, the less and less control, the less and less influence the devil has in our Christian lives. There's only one possible explanation. Man has authority on the earth. Mark chapter 11. Chief priests and scribes and the elders came to Jesus and they said, By whose authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Simple question. Jesus turns it around on them and says, I will also ask of you one question and you answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Answer my question and I'll answer yours. Jesus is smart enough to know they really don't want to know for the sake of ascertaining God's plan and purpose. They just want to find something that they can use against him. Here's the question he asks them, verse 30. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it of men? Answer me. And they reasoned within themselves, saying, if we shall say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe on him? But if we say of men, they feared the people, for all men counted John, that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell. And Jesus answering said unto them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, Jesus had to have a purpose in asking this question. The baptism of John, who's it from? Is it from men or is it from heaven? Well, what's the answer? In Acts chapter 19, when Paul gets to Ephesus, he finds certain disciples and he thinks they're born again. And so he asked him, he said, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Believed is an indication that he believed they were saved from their devout attitude toward the things of God. He assumed that they were born again. They said, we haven't heard of the Holy Ghost. And he said, within well, what are you baptized? They said, we've been baptized under John's baptism. That's this one that Jesus is asking about in Mark chapter 11. Paul answers and said, the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. But he talked about one that would come after him, who would baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Now, we know the baptism with the Holy Ghost and fire is from heaven. But what about John's baptism of repentance? Is that from heaven or is that from men? Well, let me ask you this. Does God repent? Then a baptism of repentance can't be from God. The baptism of repentance is man seeing his need and his failures and his own lack and changing his own heart toward God's purposes. So the answer to Jesus' question about John's baptism is very simply this. John's baptism was a baptism of men. There was a supernatural aspect to it because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. You remember he talked about John being the greatest of the prophets. He said there's never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist. The reason for that was not because John the Baptist did miracles because he didn't. We don't have record of one miracle that he did. Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament did tons of miracles. Elisha did exactly twice as many. He had a double portion of the same anointing that was on Elijah. He did exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah did, at least that are recorded in the Scripture. 
So he's not saying that that, uh, John was the greatest prophet because of the miracles. He's not saying that John was the greatest prophet because of the law. Moses is considered the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he's the lawgiver. Among the Jews, I mean. Isaiah was a great prophet because he had insight into the end time events. What made John the greatest of the prophets? The message of Jesus. And remember, he was filled with the Holy Ghost. The Bible uses the term filled with the Holy Ghost. That doesn't mean the same thing as the Acts 2-4 experience. It means he was set apart and anointed by God for a specific purpose. To be the herald that Jesus is coming soon. That message that made him the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. So what can we say about John? John's baptism was a baptism of men. But he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. And that would be the answer. The most complete answer that I can come up with at least. To Jesus' question about John's baptism. Now why is Jesus answering or asking that question as a condition to answering theirs? Because the answer is the same. Jesus' source of authority was the same as John's source of authority. By what authority doest thou these things, they asked? And who gave you this authority to do these things? What's the answer? The same as John's. The same as the reason that John was able to do what he did. Jesus was a man anointed of the Holy Ghost. Look with me to John chapter 5. I'm going to go through these pretty quick. I'm running out of time, so I want to get through this pretty quick. John chapter 5, verse uh, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so is he given to the Son to have life in himself. Notice verse 27. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the Son of Man. Let's keep reading. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. And shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can, verse 30, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. John chapter 8, verse 16, Jesus said, I judge no man. Talking about his work on the earth, he said, I judge no man. Well, then what is his judgment? Verse 27, God has given him authority to execute judgment on the earth because he's the son of man. Please notice he does not say because he's God's son. He has given him authority to execute judgment on the earth because he's the son of of man Jesus said the source of his authority on the earth is from God because he's a man now what judgment is he executing well the judgment he's talking about is the work of salvation what was the work of salvation and by that I mean Jesus going to the cross shedding his blood and being raised from the dead paying the price for spiritual death during those three days between the cross and the resurrection. What was the judgment that Jesus executed relative to the resurrection? He passed judgment once and for all on spiritual death 
and all the characteristics and consequences thereof. Look with me to Matthew chapter 12. Verse 14, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. He healed them all, which means he, had extra, he was exercising authority over sickness and disease. And he charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant in whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will show judgment to the Gentiles. Is he talking about condemnation? Is he saying he'll condemn the Gentiles? Well, that's not what he did. He will show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break and smoking flax shall he not quench. Till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. The Gentiles were able to come to trusting in Jesus through the work of salvation. Were they not? Notice he exercised judgment unto victory. He broke the back of spiritual death once and for all. And everything that makes up spiritual death. Sickness, poverty. Depression, every evil thing. Notice why Jesus is executing judgment on the earth. He's executing judgment on the earth to bring victory to mankind. And he's executing judgment on spiritual death. John chapter 12. Verse 27. This is his last night with his disciples. He said, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into this hour. He's facing the cross. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. Father glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. And others said an angel spoke to him. And Jesus answered and said this voice came not because of me but for your sakes. Please notice verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Notice the judgment of this world is judgment upon spiritual death, not judgment upon mankind. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Remember where we started in John chapter 5 and verse 27. And the, well, verse 26 says, the father has life in himself. So is he given to the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Folks, everything about Jesus life on the earth was an exercise of authority because he was man. If that were not the case, if he was operating on the earth as the son of God, There would never have been a need for him to be anointed by the Holy Ghost when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Who can anoint God? But the Bible says that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory for the purpose of coming to the earth and being born of a woman to operate on the earth as a man 
He's not operating on the earth with the power that he had with the Father during the creation. He's laid all that aside. He's emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. Jesus is an example of what a righteous man that understands authority can do in the earth. The breaking of sickness and disease over others. The deliverance from bondage. The casting out of devils. Those are all things that pertain to life and godliness that are given to every man, woman, boy, and girl today that is in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God our Father and Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us. You don't have to ask for it. You don't have to seek after it. It's already given to you. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Now folks, I understand the things that we're saying cut directly across from what the modern church has taught us what we've grown up with and hear and heard all of our lives but that doesn't change the fact that it's true i personally believe you judge this for yourself but i personally believe that if we can break free from the mental block that's been created in us and in the church world by hundreds and hundreds of years of teaching and find the truth and act on it instead we'll exercise authority like the world's never seen it is a spiritual fact it is a spiritual truth that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed it is a spiritual, spiritual truth and an eternal fact that you have authority over all the power of the devil. Jesus said nothing would by any means hurt you. Those are eternal truths. They may not line up with the way we think. They may not line up with what we've heard preached. But it's eternal truth. Man never has stopped being the one that was destined to have dominion in the earth. And Jesus came to restore every bit of it back to us. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see and know the truth like we've never seen it or known it before. Holy Spirit, we ask you to give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. That the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, who we are in Christ Jesus. And that we would know the exceeding greatness of the power of God that works and dwells in us. We ask you, Father, to reveal to us exactly who we are. Lord, our desire is that the veil of the flesh would be pierced. 
with the revelation knowledge of the finished work of Jesus. Show us, Lord. Open our eyes to the all things that we've been given that pertain to life and godliness. We seek to live the higher life, Father. Not walk as mere men. Holy Spirit, Jesus said you are our helper. That you'd guide us into all reality. Guide us into the reality of our dominion. And our authority here in the earth. Guide us into the reality. Of those things that have been given to us. Because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Guide us into the reality. Of who we are in Christ Jesus. Both now and evermore. In Jesus name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Folks, there's so much we don't see yet. I believe we'll see it. The more we meditate on the Word, the closer and closer we get. I think the light that we see right now is just a little light shining through a keyhole, as it were. But I believe the day is coming where the full sun shall shine upon us. And we'll see and be seen for who we really are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen.